Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. This morning we will be in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 19. And so I would encourage you to find that passage of Scripture. Uh, As you're turning there, let me recognize a special group that is here today. Southeastern, for many years, has had what is known as its ADIV program, which is an associate of divinity degree that is uh, specifically crafted for men that God calls later in life into ministry. uh, And they want to be trained better to serve in the assignment that God has given them. And uh, today we're honoring a number of them. We'll be having a luncheon after chapel, but there's a significant number of our ADIV graduates who are here today with us, a number of them also with their mate. And so guys, if you would, would you stand for a moment if you're an ADIV graduate that our folks can see you and just express to you how much we appreciate you and how thankful we are for you. When I came to Southeastern the first time in 1992, every semester I would teach a section of systematic theology uh, to the ADIV students. And uh, it was a delight to my heart that I really cannot express because many of these men uh, were saved later in life. Then God called them into the ministry and uh, their love, uh, their energy, their passion, their enthusiasm uh, always inspired me. And so you guys are my heroes, and I'm very, very, very thankful that God's hand uh, rests upon you and thankful for the ministry that he has given you. This semester, we have been encouraging uh, some of our preachers to bring a message related to the doctrine of Christology. And I thought this morning that it would be appropriate to wed the doctrine of Christology to the doctrine of eschatology. And as I was reflecting upon it, it came to basically my cognizance that I cannot remember. Now, it may be something about my memory, but I cannot remember a message being brought in chapel, at least for a long, long time, on the second coming. So that's exactly what I want to do today, wed Christology to eschatology, and in particular, focus on the return of the King. Jesus is coming again. And the verses that are going to be our focus of study is chapter 19 in Revelation. There is no S at the end of that word. It is Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through verse 21. But I also want to read the first part of chapter 21 as well, just to put everything in its proper context. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast. And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And then move with me to chapter 21, verse 1, and reading through verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then one of my very, very favorite verses in all the Bible, Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and uh, they are true. Revelation 19 through 22 is the way the Bible is supposed to end. It is the way the world is supposed to end. It is the way that our hearts long for time to come to an end and eternity to be ushered in. John Piper, I think, puts it well when he says in the context of the coming again of Christ, there are two appearings of Christ. One is called an appearing of grace, the other called an appearing of glory. The Christ who will come in glory is the Christ who came in grace. What God's grace has begun in our lives through the first coming of Christ, His glory will complete in our lives through the second coming. And so what I want to do is walk through these wonderful, magnificent verses. The Bible many times addresses the coming again of our Lord, but no passage of Scripture, I think, does it quite the way that Revelation 19 verses 11 through 21 do it. And so there are three movements to these verses that I want to show you this morning. Let me put them on the table, and then we're going to walk through the passage, allowing this to form and provide our outline. First of all, King Jesus will return in glory and power. That is verses 11 through 16. King Jesus will return in glory and in power. 
Secondly, in verses 17 and 18, King Jesus will judge all who reject him. King Jesus will judge all who reject him. And finally, in verses 19 through 21, King Jesus will defeat the enemies who oppose him. So he will return in glory and power. He will judge all who reject him. He will defeat the enemies who oppose him. John's vision then begins with Jesus returning in glory and in power. And his particular emphasis or focus is on this aspect of our Lord's coming again, his complete and total victory over all the powers of evil. In other words, in Revelation chapter 19, John sees the coming of Christ as the coming of a conquering warrior Messiah. George Eldon Ladd said he will come in blood-stained garments, destroying all hostile and opposing powers with his mighty sword. In his cross and resurrection, Christ won a great victory over the powers of evil, and by his second coming, he will execute that victory. Now, as we look at his return in glory and power, I think there are three observations we can make. Number one, his appearance will be glorious. Verse 11, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. Now, this is not the first time that we have seen a rider on a white horse. There was one that appeared back in chapter 6 and verse 2. And though, of course, Bible scholars debate as to the identity of that particular individual, I think it is best understood as the spirit of conquest that is ultimately embodied in the beast of Revelation chapter 13, the person we know more popularly as the Antichrist. But here in chapter 19, it is not that rider, but a much different rider. This is the return of the king. And as he returns on a white horse in context, I think the idea is one both of victory and also one of purity. And in fact, the description that that unfolds would, I think, support that understanding. It says the one sitting on the horse is called, and what we see here are the first of five names that are given to the Lord Jesus in Revelation 19. First of all, he is called faithful and true. And the Bible says it is in righteousness that he judges and makes war. He is called faithful and true. The word faithful conveys the idea of reliability, uh, the idea of dependability, the idea of his trustworthiness. The word true conveys the idea of his authenticity, his genuineness, that he is indeed the real thing. You put the two together and what you can summarize by saying is simply this, what he says, you can believe. And what he does, you can trust. In fact, as the faithful and true one, he can do what no other king can or ever will be able to do. The text tells us that is in righteousness that he will judge and that he will make war. Only this king can be described in that way. But John continues his description in verse 12. And in verse 12, he adds three further characteristics to this one on the white horse. He says, first of all, his eyes are like a flame of fire. 
Secondly, on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And thirdly, he has a name that no one knows but himself. He says that his eyes are like a flame of fire. This communicates the penetrating insight, indeed the divine omniscience of the one on the white horse. Now that is a thought this morning that has great practical application for every one of us in this room. He is the omniscient one who looks into and peers into the very recesses of your heart and of your soul. On the one hand, that ought to bless you. On the other hand, it ought to terrify you. It ought to terrify you. Why? Because Jesus Christ sees every action. Jesus Christ sees every thought. Jesus Christ knows every single emotion of your heart and soul that you have ever had. There's nothing about you that escapes his knowledge. In fact, he actually knows you better than you know yourself. And I'll say this to you this morning. I am so grateful that no one knows me like that but Jesus. Fact matter is, if even one of you knew this day, some of the things that I have thought, some of the things that I have felt, I promise you I would not be here today. I would be too embarrassed to stand in front of you. And so it should be a terrifying reality, a sobering reality to know that he knows you in that kind of a way. And yet it is a blessed reality because knowing you as he does, Knowing you in all of your sin, knowing you in all of your wickedness, knowing you in all of your rebellion and your evil, he still loves you. That is amazing grace to know that we have a God that knows us in that kind of intimate way, and yet he still loves us and demonstrated so by sending his son to die on the cross. Yes, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. The ESV uh, decided to take the word uh, that is in the Greek text, diadema, and trans or bring it over into English because there are actually two words for crown that you find in the Bible. Uh, there's the word Stephanos, if your name is Stephen or Stephanie, uh, your name means crowned, and that is the crown of victory. But there's also the diadema, the diadem, and that is the crown that is always given in the context of royalty or in the context of sovereignty and power. And notice what it says there. He doesn't have a single crown on his head. No, in this apocalyptic imagery, he has many crowns on his head. And when you ask why, the answer is given in verse 16, because he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And so his eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And the Bible says he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, to my utter amazement, there have been a number of times in my life when someone has come up to me and said, uh, Brother Danny, over there in Revelation 19, it says that Jesus has a name that no one knows but him. What do you think that name is? <laughs> and I just don't really know how to respond other than to say, well, you know, that's really not a very intelligent, I don't say that, but I think it. <laughs> I would just say, well, you know, it says in the text that the only person who knows that name is him. So I suspect if he is the only one who knows it, then nobody else knows it. Now, you say, so what does it mean? Now, that I think I can answer. I think the reason he has a name that no one knows but him is on the one hand, 
to communicate. No one can claim authority over him. No one has a, a, a hold on him. And that would go back into some of the ways the Semitic people thought about the name. But I think there's something more fantastic than that. And I think it is this. I believe after you and I have been in heaven for millennium after millennium after millennium, we will still not have exhausted the knowledge of how great and how wonderful and how fantastic Jesus is. In fact, for all of eternity, we will be learning more and more and more about the wonder of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. I think that's why he has the name that no one knows but himself. But then look at what it says in verse 13. Two more descriptions are added. He says, first of all, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And secondly, he bears another name in addition to faithful and true. He also has the name, the Word of God. Now, the robe dipped in blood. The context of this passage and the parallels that you find in Isaiah chapter 63 verses 1 through 6 and also even in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 20 would perhaps indicate that the blood here is the blood of his enemies. That would be the most natural reading of the text. But it would also be important for us to note that in the book of Revelation, the importance of the blood of the martyrs is noted on a number of occasions in chapter 6, verse 10, in chapter 17, verse 6, and in chapter 18 and verse 24. Furthermore, in the book of Revelation, the blood of the redeeming lamb is highlighted in chapter 5 and verse 9. And so perhaps the blood that we see here in verse 13, the robe dipped in blood, is a reminder that the enemies of God will be judged. It is a reminder that the saints will be vindicated. And it is a reminder that the redemption of the Lamb will be remembered for all of eternity. And personally, I like the latter idea the most because I do think it is teaching us, at least in part, that for all of eternity, we will be reminded of the fact that without the shedding of his blood, there would have been no forgiveness of sins. Liberal theologians on the earth may apologize and shy away from talking about the blood, but you hear me and you hear me well. There is no embarrassment in heaven over the blood of the Lamb. No, we will be reminded that without the shedding of his blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But then we see a fourth name, as I mentioned a moment ago, the uh, concealed name in addition to faithful and true. We see that he is also called the Word of God, which is just a reminder that he is the perfect communication of God. I think John, of course, would draw us back to John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Just a reminder that when you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. When you listen to Jesus, you are listening to God. As Hebrews chapter 1 teaches us in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. And so verses 11 through 13 focus on the fact that his appearance is glorious. But secondly, verse 14 also emphasizes the fact that his army is holy. Look at that phrase in verse 14. The armies, plural, of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. 
When the king returns, he will be accompanied by his armies. And I think the plural tips us off that both angels and saints are in view. In fact, again, theologians and Bible commentators will often debate, well, who do you think is in view here in verse 14 when it speaks of the armies that are going to come with him? And they will point out that the angels are repeatedly said to come back with Christ. In Zechariah 14, Mark 8, Luke 9, Matthew 13, Matthew 16, Matthew Matthew 24, Matthew 25, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Jude 14 and 15. So there is no debate, no question that when he comes again, angels are coming with him. But the Bible also says that when he comes again, believers will accompany him as well. You see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 14 and also in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14. But contextually, I believe verse 14 is reflecting verse 8. And in verse 8, it is very clear that the ones in view are not angels, but the ones in view are believers. Notice there he is talking about the marriage of the lamb to his bride. And look at what it says there in verse 7 and verse 8 of chapter 19. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride... Believers, the church has made herself ready. It will be granted to her to clothe herself, how? Same phrase, with linen, pure and white. Linen, pure and bright. In other words, the redeemed, clothed in the imputed righteousness of Christ, the redeemed, whose righteous deeds reflect what Christ is doing in their lives are those who are following him on white horses. Now, I don't want to make too much out of this, but I do note the phrase, they were following him on white horses. In other words, the Lord Jesus will not fight his battle when he comes again, the way most military leaders fight their battles today. Most military leaders today, when they engage in battle, are far, far, far in the back behind the lines. But when the Lord Jesus comes again, he'll not be at the back. Uh, He'll be at the front. Furthermore, when we come back with him, now hear me and hear me well, we will not be participators in this battle. We will only be spectators. We will only be there watching him clean up and watching him bring victory because here's the deal, brothers and sisters. When he came the first time, he didn't need your help or mine. And when he comes the second time, he won't need your help then either. No, we'll be there, but we'll not be participators in this battle. We will be spectators watching him win the day. His army is holy. But then thirdly, his authority is unparalleled. Look at what you see there in verse 15 and 16. Three images, the sword, the staff, and the wine press depict the unparalleled authority of the returning king. And what you see John doing is something that he does throughout the book of Revelation. There in the 22 chapters, 285 direct quotations from the Old Testament. Some have said there are more than 400 citations of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And so here he begins to bring a number of them together in verses 15 and 16. He says first, from his mouth, 
comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. A quote from Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 4. It also says there that in addition to the sharp sword coming from his mouth, he will rule them with a rod of iron, drawing from Psalm 2 verses 8 and verse 9. And then he uses the imagery of the wine press, drawing from Isaiah chapter 63 verses 3 through 6, where it says he will tread the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. In other words, he is coming to judge the world in vivid wrath and in vivid judgment as the sovereign God designated here as God the Almighty. And of course, that begs a question. By what right does he do this to this world when he comes again? And verse 16 simply gives you the answer because on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, let me make a comment about verse 16. And I actually got in trouble in making the same comment one time in a church. Some people have used verse 16 to uh, uh, make the argument for and to seek to find biblical warrant for tattoos, for tattoos. And they will say, well, go read Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16. And it says on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, let me make a couple of comments. First of all, I don't find anything personally unbiblical about having a tattoo. Now, I'm not going to say it's always smart, but I've got nothing against you having a tattoo. I'll just remind you, though, that once it's there, without some type of painful treatment, it's going to, like, stay there, like, for the rest of your life. And what looks really cool on your body at 20 may not look so cool at 60 or 70 or 80. So just keep that in mind. And you might want to put it in a place where people don't always see it all the time or put it in a place where the skin doesn't get flabby real quickly. Just a word of counsel there. Just, just trying to help you out now, all right? But I have no problem with them. In fact, a number of you have used uh, tattoos for evangelistic purposes, and that is fine with me. I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. So understand, I'm not making an argument against tattoos. And I know the Old Testament scripture that you're going to come back if you're against them and throw at me. You're taking it out of context, so don't even try it. I'm not going to pay you any mind. I'm not going to pay you any attention. not going to do any good, all right? But I don't think this is the warrant for tattoos in Revelation 19, 16, because I don't think it's on literally his thigh. I think it is on the robe as it drapes over his thigh. And so on that robe, along the thigh, you have the name written, drawing again from Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 17 and Daniel chapter 2 and verse 47. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. He alone is the sovereign King and Lord. This phrase it communicates he has no equal. Uh, there's no competition. He possesses the full divine authority and absolute power over all that exists. And this is the one who is coming again. David Jeremiah says it beautifully. When we sing all hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. We are proclaiming he is coming again. 
And so King Jesus will return in glory and in power. Now, two further observations will not take as much time. Verses 17 and 18, King Jesus will judge all who reject him. Says there in verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called out to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come! And gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh. And then there is a litany of persons that the birds are going to eat their flesh. Two observations about the fact that he will reject all, uh, that he will judge all who have rejected him. Number one, there will be no escape. There will be no escape. John Piper says the second coming is like lightning and vultures. And then he makes this comment. Christ's coming will be globally unmistakable. It will be as publicly unmistakable as lightning, and the second coming of Christ will be like vultures who come on a corpse. Matthew 24, 28 provides supporting evidence. When the world is ready for judgment as roadkill is for the vultures, then he will come in great wrath. This will not be private, secret or pleasant for unbelievers. He will come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, Matthew 24, 30. And the judgment will be like vultures sweeping in on the corpse of human rebellion. The apostle John sees an angel. The angel, is, it says in the text, is standing in the sun, not literally in the sun, but in this apocalyptic imagery, an angel appears in the heavens with the sun to his back, providing an almost ecliptic kind of appearance, an ominous appearance. And this angel has a very direct assignment. He cries with a loud voice to all the birds that fly overhead, come and gather for the great supper of God. Now, you ought to underline that phrase, the great supper of God because it stands in stark contrast to the marriage supper of the Lamb that is discussed in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. There in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, the saints are called to come and celebrate with the Lord at this supper. But here, sinners are called and condemned by the Lord for a bird feast, a vulture's banquet where they are the entree. And it is a great supper because all rebellious sinners on earth will be present. And try as they might, there is coming a day when there is absolutely no escape for those who have rejected the offer of grace and salvation that God has extended to the nations through faith in Jesus Christ. There will be no escape. But secondly, there will be no discrimination. It says there in verse 18, they will come to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders. You say, well, that's great. I'm not in that group. Read the rest of the verse. And the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. When Jesus comes again to judge this world, social status or rank will not exempt you from the judgment. Indeed, you will stand before him as every man will stand before him, giving an account for why it was that you rejected the gracious, generous 
offer of salvation that God put before you in the person of his son. Scott Duvall, a wonderful scholar at uh, the uh, Washita Baptist University, said it this way, everyone will participate in one of two eschatological feasts. The righteous joining in the wedding supper of the Lamb or the wicked becoming the feast at the great supper of God. God will judge the wicked from every social category. Social status or rank will not be enough to exempt the ungodly from the judgment. So the Bible teaches us a day of universal righteous reckoning is coming. Everyone will be held accountable for their rejection of the Lamb. Finally, number three, King Jesus will defeat the enemies who oppose him, verse 19 and verse 20. I believe the battle of Armageddon is noted several times in the book of Revelation. We get additional information uh, in the two prior accounts, Revelation 14, 14 through 20, Revelation 16, 12 through 16. But as Chuck Swindoll has well said, the battle of Armageddon will be a disappointment because it will be over in a flash. It will last but a moment. Indeed, Swindoll says it like this. Let's cut to the chase. Before anyone on earth can utter the word Armageddon, the battle will be over. When God determines the end has come, it is curtains. And Martin Luther's wonderful hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, I think helps us here when he tells us and leads us to sing, one little word shall fail him. And that's exactly what will happen when the sword comes out of the mouth of the returning Son of God. And here are two things that will occur. First of all, Jesus will capture his enemies. Verse 20, the beast the beast of Revelation 13 one, uh, through uh, 11, I believe, a reference to the Antichrist. The beast and the kings of the earth with their armies are gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. But the beast, verse 20, was captured and with him the false prophet who in his presence has done signs by which he has deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. And so you have the two great enemies of God noted here in chapter 19. I would add the third great enemy of God, Satan, is introduced at the beginning again of chapter 20 so that you have this unholy trinity once more brought together, Satan who counterfeits God the Father, Antichrist, the beast from the sea who counterfeits God the Son, the false prophet, the beast from the land who counterfeits the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I don't care what your eschatology is, we can all agree that that type of theological dynamic is going on. Well, here they are captured, it says, by the one that is on the white horse. But let me just make one quick reference here, one quick observation. It says of the false prophet who in the presence of the beast had done signs, he had done miracles by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshiped its image. This is just a reminder, brothers and sisters, that not everything that appears to be a miracle is a miracle. And secondly, not everything that is a miracle is necessarily a miracle from God. Always 
check the source. Always see who gets the glory. And I'll just say this simply, if anyone gets the glory other than King Jesus, mark it down. It is a miracle that did not come from God. Well, interestingly, these are the first two inhabitants of eternal hell described here as the lake of fire. I'll just note in passing, there is not a hint of annihilationism in these verses. And so he will capture his enemies and then finally... He will slay his enemies. Look at what it says in verse 21. And the rest, they were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds, they were gorged with their flesh. The late John Phillips says it so very well in his inimicable way. Then suddenly it will all be over. In fact, there will be no war at all in the sense that we think of war. There will be just a word spoken from him who sits astride the great white horse. Once he spoke a word to a fig tree and it withered away. Once he spoke a word to howling winds and heaving waves and the storm clouds vanished and the waves fell still. Once he spoke to a legion of demons bursting at the seams of a poor man's soul and instantly they fled. And now he speaks a word and the war is over. The blasphemous, loud-mouthed beast is stricken where he stands. The false prophet, the miracle-working windbag from the pit is punctured. And still another word, and the panic-stricken armies reel and stagger and fall down dead. Field marshals and generals, admirals and air commanders, soldiers and sailors, rank and file, one and all, they fall. And the vultures descend and cover the scene. David Platt sums it up well, I believe, in his message on Revelation 19. What a powerful picture of Christ on a white horse, faithful and true, the righteous judge, the messianic warrior who sees all, knows all, judges all, crowned with diadems and shrouded in mystery. He comes to conquer God's enemies once and for all to end the history of the world with the revelation of God's word, to rule the nations as he brings the wrath of God upon this world, dominated by sin and Satan. Of this one, there can be no question. He and he alone, he is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. The King will return. It is my prayer that all of us in this room are indeed ready and rightly and properly waiting. Would you stand with me and we'll be dismissed this morning in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that there is an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And because there is an empty tomb, there is an ascended Lord. Because there is an ascended Lord at the right hand of the Father in heaven, there is a King who is coming again. And Lord, I thank you that you're going to bring history to its proper and appropriate close. Indeed, the Bible does end the way that we want it to end. And the Bible does end in the way that history deserves to end. And Lord, that ending will reach a climactic moment when Jesus Christ, the returning King, comes back to earth. 
Lord, we join with John at the end of the revelation, simply saying this morning, even so, come Lord Jesus. We long for that day, we look for that day, and Lord, we will love that day of your appearing. Now, Lord, may we not be bogged down in needless and foolish uh, speculation, but may we indeed allow the wonderful truth of your coming again to motivate us to steadfastness, to motivate us to loving service, and to motivate us to persevere until that day that we see you in the clouds with great glory and power coming again. All of this, Lord, and for so much more, we praise your name and thank you. All in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. And amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost dying world. Your gifts will help to train more and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.